You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Last week we began our study through the book of James. James is an immensely practical book. There are 108 verses in the book of James and at least 59 commands. And so it's immensely practical. James shoots from the hip. He doesn't pull any punches. He says things as they are, straight up. And the truth is, if you read the book of James, you will be wounded. James will will hit you between the eyes on something because it's just so practical. James' concern in this letter is that believers who have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire know how to be a Christian, know how to act like a Christian. This is not a book that tells us how to become a Christian. Paul covers that clearly in all of his letters. This is not about becoming, it's about how to be, how to have or to possess the faith that we have. Um, James focuses on behavior. And so as Paul covers their orthodoxy, their right doctrine, James covers their orthopraxy, their right living or right practice. And we should not emphasize orthodoxy to the neglect of orthopraxy. And this is the tendency in the Christian church in the West. I really believe that as we look at the church, there are a lot of people that are very concerned about doctrine as they should be. Truth doctrine is of the utmost importance. But sometimes what seems to happen is we're so concerned about truth that we forget to actually live it out. We forget that it's supposed to change us. That when Jesus said, do this and don't do this, it doesn't just mean understand what he expects. It means to not do that and to do this. We should be being changed by truth. I say this with all the passion I have, you must know truth. That's that's all the passion I have right there. (laughs) You must know truth. Pastor will be back next week and you'll get more passion. (laughs) But listen, you ought to love it and you ought to live it. Okay? Know it, love it, live it. That's what we need to do with God's word. Um, remember what Alistair Begg said from last week. He said, God's word was not given to us ultimately so that our knowledge would be increased, but so that our lives would be changed. Better yet, Jesus in John thirteen seventeen said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And James echoes that statement here in James chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we must learn how to possess the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what the book of James does for us. Uh, Last week, in the the first four verses of the book of James, um, James introduces himself as a slave to God and of Jesus. Though he was legitimately the half-brother of Jesus Christ and was the leader of the first and most important church in in the empire at the time, the church of Jerusalem, he saw himself firstly and most importantly as a slave to Jesus Christ. And he teaches us what an honor it is to be able to be a servant of Christ. That that is truly the highest honor, greater than being a half-brother or being a leader of a church. We all, all those who follow Christ, who are disciples of Christ, have been called to be slaves, servants of Jesus Christ. And that's an honor. James tells us to count our trials, our tests, our struggles, our temptations, as joy. 
Count those things that bring you misery and discomfort as a cause to rejoice. To any sane person who does not understand God's word and, and, and is looking at this purely from a logical point of view, this doesn't make any sense. And yet James makes a very compelling case for why a Christian ought to see trials as a cause for joy. It is because through the pain and the difficulty that we experience, God grows us in our toughness, in our heroic endurance, in our perseverance, in our faithfulness, in our patience, and all those things, they're impossible otherwise. It is impossible to to grow in endurance until you're tested, until you go through trials. So what God is doing here, he's doing for a very important, vital purpose in your life as you go through trials. And as we endure, the promise here is that we are brought to maturity, to completeness, to perfection as a believer in Christ, a believer who no, who no longer lacks anything. Trials truly are the refiner's fire. If you want to be pure, to be valuable, to be of use, then you must go through the fire. If you don't go through the fire, you'll never be purified. Here is the truth. We all go through the fire. Every person that ever lives suffers in some way or another, some to a greater extent than others, but we all will go through the fire. And so the question here that James is asking is not, do you want to be tested? Do you want to go through the fire? Because your answer might be no. The answer, the question that he's asking is, as you go through the trials, will you learn to count them as joy so that you can become people of spiritual endurance and strength and become perfected and mature as believers in Christ. It's not, it's not man, you should, you should decide today that you're going to find the first trial and go through it. What it is, is when you're going through trial, and if you're in trials right now, will you respond in a way that trusts God, that shows faith, so that he can do a great work in your life? Because you're going to go through it. If we were to begin our study in verse 5 today, we might think that all of a sudden James has gone through, from talking about trials and difficulties to a different subject entirely, that he's jumped from trials to wisdom. But I don't think that's the case. I think that what he says in verse 5 is very connected. And so what I want to do today is I want to begin by reading, reading James chapter 1, verses 2 to 7, but I'm going to skip verse 5, and part of verse 6. And you'll see why I'm doing that in a second, okay? So James chapter 1, starting at verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Chapter, verse 6 The second part of the verse says, For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So so we follow what James is saying here, and he says, The goal of trials is to produce toughness, endurance, perseverance that leads to maturity. And his advice is to let God allow patience to do what, what God is intending to do through um, that trial. Why should we do that? Because God is at work. And then I feel like 
chapter, verse 6, the second part of the verse, just seems to naturally fit with that. He goes on and he says, He that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. If you have no stability, no strength, no endurance, no perseverance, then you're going to be thrown around by every storm and tossed. That person, he goes on in in verse 7, says that they will receive nothing of the Lord. And so if, if... James chapter 1, verse 5, and the start of verse 6 wasn't there, it would seem like all the rest of those verses fit nicely together. God is at work. You're going through trials. There's a reason for it. You should allow God to do what he's going to do. If you don't allow God to do what he's going to do, then you're going to be tossed to and fro, and you're not going to receive anything good from the Lord. It all seems to fit. But we find in the middle of that is verse 5. And I don't think verse 5 is a brand new thought and that verse 6 just just coincidentally fits with what verse 4 is saying. And so certainly we're going to learn something this morning about wisdom, but I think we're going to learn something very specifically about wisdom in the context of our trials. So verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and abrades not, and it shall be given him. Verse 5, we have this new perspective to the subject of trials, and it's introduced brilliantly by James in the form of a question. If any of you lacks wisdom, in other words, do you lack wisdom? Does anybody here today at Maple City Baptist Church lack wisdom? Well, I hope that your initial response is yes. I mean, obviously, we all lack wisdom in some way or another. But as I paused and thought about it this week, I saw a couple problems with this. And that is, the first one is, I think that often we really don't think we do. We know the right answer is yes, we lack wisdom. That's what we'd write on a test. But in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that we really lack wisdom. Um, I was reading an article that someone posted this week on Facebook, and it was comparing men and women and what we like to talk about. And it said that women tend to like to have discussions about things that they don't know as much about with people because they find that as they ask questions and discuss, then they form more of a connection with that person, whereas men prefer to speak about things that they know a lot about already because they like to dominate the conversation. They like to show how smart they are, that they know everything about the subject, and they prefer not go in, to not go into a subject that they're really oblivious of. And I thought about that for a bit, and I guess part of that's comparing the difference between men and women. Um, but as I thought about it, I thought the truth that I see there is just that men are proud. Right? We don't, we don't want to talk about something that isn't going to make us look good. We, we want to just live in the realm that we know and have everybody else think that we know. And the truth is, some women are proud too, right? And so when we we think about human nature, we have to always remember that our our human nature is going to be, I don't need this. I've got it all covered. No, I don't need this wisdom. I mean, okay, sure. I mean, technically, I guess I lack wisdom. But really, I've got this life pretty figured out. I'm doing okay. Okay. There's nobody that's going to be able to help me or tell me what I'm doing wrong. Um, I've got this thing figured out. So that's the first problem I see. And I'd say this. If you don't think you lack wisdom, there is nothing that can be done to help you. 
There are people that I've seen that have dug themselves the, the deepest pit. And from the bottom of the pit, they're still shouting, I am right. And it's, it's sad. You can't ever help someone that, that believes that they don't, they've got it figured out. One of the greatest things that you can have as a believer is a teachable spirit. Somebody with enough humility to say, I don't have it figured out, and I want to learn. I want to learn from God's word, right? The second problem is this. Even if we might say that I need wisdom, oftentimes we don't think that wisdom is all that important. Like, if I was to ask the question, how many of you that are, that are younger in this room would say that there is somebody else in this room that you look up to, that you think is godly, that you think you could learn something from, right? How many people in this room that are younger would say, yeah, there are people in this room that I could learn from, okay? Well, there should be a lot of hands up, I think. I think. When's the last time you went to that person and asked them? When's the last time you asked to go out for a coffee with them? When's the last time you actually did something to try and gain some of the wisdom that they have? We know the right answer, but we do nothing about it. And so the truth is, we don't think wisdom is that important. If we would say that that person has it, and I, yeah, sure, I'd I'd maybe gain something from it, but I'm not going to take the time to spend any time with that person and ask them questions and get to know them and get to know why they do what they do and, and what makes them tick and how the Lord has worked in their life. If I don't have enough time to ask those questions, I really don't think I need wisdom all that much. So those are a couple problems. The truth is, we all lack wisdom, and we are all in desperate need of it. And we need to get there. And so asking the question, if any of you lack wisdom, our answer must be, I do, and I need it. And so this is what he says. He says, let him ask of God that gives to all liberally, freely, he gives wisdom. He's not holding it back. He's not rationing it out. He gives wisdom freely and abrades not. And the idea of abrades not, he's not, he's not criticizing you or reproaching you or he's not upset with you. It's not like God thinks, Dan, you've asked the same stupid question over and over and over and over and over again. He doesn't think of me that way. He says, I'm glad you're coming to me and asking again. Okay? He's going to give it liberally. He's not going to abrade you. And it shall be given him. But here's the fine print. In verse number 10, it's not just that easy. Okay, ask the question, you'll get it. Because there is some fine print. He says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like the wave of a sea driven with the wind and tossed. He says, if if you're going to have this prayer for wisdom answered, there must be one thing that you have. And it's simple. It's faith. Now, why is faith so important when you go to God in a prayer for wisdom? The answer is this. Because sometimes God will tell you something that you don't understand. There will be times that the word of God will confront you with something that doesn't immediately make sense to you. And if you don't have faith, then as soon as I confront something that I don't understand that I think doesn't make sense, if I don't have more faith in the person telling me that thing than I do in myself, then I'm done with that person. Okay? 
When I was a kid, I would be the worst kid to have in your class because I asked so many questions. And the reason I, I would question everything. The reason I did that is because I didn't believe that the teacher always knew what was best. Okay? I really thought that maybe there were times that they were wrong. And I was right. The teachers don't always know what's best. And so being a student that asks questions and wants to know and get to the bottom of it when you're dealing with a, a human being teacher, it's a good idea, right? But what he's saying here is there will be times that you're not going to understand it fully. Will you still trust the character of your father? Will you still trust his word when you don't get it? When you're in the darkness, will you believe what he says? That's faith. And that's why faith is is, is necessary if you're ever going to grow in wisdom. Because you will never grow in wisdom if every single time your own thinking is confronted and you say, no, there's no growth there. You've become the ultimate authority. And as long as you're the authority, you have no room to grow. And so we must have faith. Nothing wavering. Sorry, I can give you some examples of this. I think that if I was to tell someone that if they exercise, they will have more energy. Now, all of you who have been like alive for a little while, you know that statement to be true. But if you were to tell somebody that, that didn't know that, they hadn't heard that, they didn't believe that, and, and I was just to say that, then what they would say is, you know what, when I exercise, I actually feel more tired. And I don't immediately feel like I have more energy. I, I feel like I'm, I'm ready to quit and, and go to bed. That's, that's how I feel when I exercise. And the reason is because exercise uses up energy. So there's a reason why the statement seems not to be true, and there's the experience of exercising making you tired. And so you might immediately look at that statement and say, it's not true. It doesn't make sense. It's not my experience. Um, Another example would be, if you want to get stronger, you have to tear your muscles. Damaging your muscles um, will make you stronger in the long run. And what people will say is, you know what? If if I sit down and I go to curl something, I, I curl something that's really heavy, and I curl it 10 times, and I can't get the 11th time, I don't feel like it made me stronger. I just ripped a bunch of my muscles apart. It doesn't make me stronger. And so by your reason and experience, you might dismiss what's being said. But we all know that those statements are true because we've, we see a little bit further into the future. And what, what faith is here is recognizing that God can tell you things that don't immediately make sense and might even go against what you're experiencing at the moment, but that they're true because God has a different perspective than you do. His perspective is a lot bigger than yours. We know that the, the wisdom was true even though it may violate our reasoning and our initial experience. So we must have faith. And if you come to God in faith, you say, God, I believe that you are wiser and smarter than me, that you know what is best, and that your word is truth, even when I don't understand it, then there is a promise here for you. But he says you must come with nothing wavering. And the idea of wavering is um, contending or um, doubting or judging. So in other words, you're, you're again not lifting yourself up as the judge over God's word. Now, some people might read this, and they might say, okay, wait, does that mean that God doesn't ever want us to doubt? Well, I don't actually think that's what it's saying here. There is an example in the New Testament where somebody doubts, and all of us sit back and condemn him for doubting, right? You know what I'm talking about, doubting Thomas. I was like, Thomas, how could you have doubted? 
Do you know who didn't condemn him? Jesus. Jesus said, Thomas, I'm, I'm here. Here's my hands, if you want to stick your fingers in them. Here's my side. I don't want you to be faithless. I want you to believe. He didn't condemn Thomas. And so there, are, there is a time for asking questions and for doubting. The, the doubting that's talking about here is, remember, he's speaking to the believer. To the believer who confesses that God is the king, that he is the savior, that he is the Lord. And then he's saying, if, if you're coming to him with this doubt of like, God, I think I know better than you. And I'm going to listen to what you say, and then I'm going to judge what you say. I'm going to doubt your word. That's the doubting that's problematic. That's the doubting where you're, you're lifting yourself up as equal to or greater than the authority of God. That's a, that's a negative kind of doubting. So there is a place of, of a lack of understanding. But even in the midst of the, the lack of understanding of the believer, there can still be faith. Verse number seven. For let not that man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. The truth is God does not operate by our manual. We do not get to write out a manual and tell God, okay, God, this is the rules. This is when you bless. This is when you curse. This is, we, we don't get to do that. I talked to one guy once and he said to me, that he had decided he would give God two years of his life. And that for two years, he would read the Bible, and he would come to church, and he would try and be a Christian. And if God didn't bless him in those two years, then he'd be done. Do you know what I knew when he said that? I knew for sure that he would not be blessed in two years. Because you don't do that with God. You don't get to write the, the book, the script that he has to live by. We want to customize God to our own liking. We want to rewrite his programming. We want him to play by our rules until we break our own rules, and then we want him to make an exception for us. This is who we are. Alistair Begg again said, Wisdom is knowing how to live in God's world by God's ways. That's what we must learn to do. So he says, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. If you think that you get to come to God however you want to and ask for whatever you want, that prayer will not be answered. There are prayers that aren't answered. The prayers when we come to God and we demand something of him, the prayers that when we come to God and we really don't believe him or we, we're trusting ourselves more than He, him, God doesn't answer every prayer, but he does answer every sincere prayer of faith. And that's the promise that, that we can cling to here. When we have that faith that he is best, that he knows best, that he's the sovereign king who loves us, that he's our father, and we come to him and say, God, help me understand this. Help me get through this. Help me to act right in this way. I don't get it, but I trust you. When we come that way, he answers that prayer. He doesn't answer all prayers. You will not receive anything from the Lord without coming to him in faith. He finishes in verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That literally means a two-spirited man. There's this phrase, double-minded, is one other place in the New Testament. It's here in the book of James as well. Chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
I think we kind of understand what he's saying in the context of, of these two passages. It is, when you're being pulled in opposite directions at once, then you cannot be standing on firm ground. If you are pulled in the direction of yourself and believing your own way and your, and your own understanding, and at the same time you're trying to go to God and say, God, um, yeah, okay, I'll, I want you to give me this, and I want you to work this, and I want you to show me this. If you're doing both of those things at one time, then you're not standing on the solid rock. You're not standing on the firm foundation. That's, you're unstable in all your ways. So what God wants us to do is to recognize who he is and to trust God for being God, not make ourselves some kind of God. This is the one time it is a good idea to put all your eggs in one basket. You don't hedge your bets with God. And far too many Christians are trying to live on this fence where we've got our good life here, we've got this figured out, and we're willing to give as much to God as it won't really impact this very much. But but we're not really willing to give it all to God because what if he doesn't prove himself faithful? You're double-minded and you're unstable. And you'll never find peace and joy and rest. You'll never find all those things that, that come when you're fully trusting God as long as you're sitting on the fence. You can't just live on the fence. Well, you can try. You're going to fall off. It's going to hurt. Notice how many ways you're unstable in. All of them. So as I thought through these verses, um, I I decided this morning we would just make this abundantly clear. We would ask a few questions of the text and then hopefully bring it all together. And so the first question I have of the text is, okay, what is wisdom? What is wisdom, really? Often we associate wisdom with these words, knowledge, understanding, insight, education, information, instruction. Unfortunately, all of these words on their own and together fall short of creating for us a good definition of wisdom. Wisdom isn't just cognitive. It's not just mental. It's not just what we think. Wisdom is also moral. And it's behavioral. There's more to wisdom than just knowledge and understanding. Think of in the book of Proverbs. It's a book written all about wisdom. And here's the wisest man that ever lived. That's King Solomon. He's writing a book to his son to try and just pass some wisdom on to him. And he begins the book, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. And at this point, we say, yes, that makes sense. That's that's what I know to be wisdom. It's instruction, it's understanding. But look at verse 3. He says, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. Justice is fairness. Judgment is moral decision, what's right and wrong. Equity is what's good and right. Part of wisdom is moral. And it's what God says is right. Part of wisdom is not just knowing, but it's acting on those things. Moral things aren't just concepts in your mind. They're not theoretical. They're practical. It's not enough to say that wisdom is understanding God's revealed truth. Wisdom is acting in light of God's revealed truth. It is a behavior that emerges from a belief system. It is the information that God supplies in his word turned into action. That's what wisdom is. 
So what takes us from reading and understanding God's word to actually doing it? What takes us from hearing a sermon on Sunday morning and thinking, you know what? That guy is crazy, but he said a couple things that made sense. What takes us from, from saying, you know what? It, that guy is crazy, but the Bible makes sense. You know, I, I, I learned something today to it being wisdom in our lives. The answer is faith. So what takes you from just in, the, in your mind to actually living the thing out is faith. You cannot divorce wisdom and faith. They're always together. What does it mean when knowledge and faith join hands? It, it, that's what we have when knowledge and faith join hands. We have wisdom. Jesus, in the parable of the builders, spoke about a wise man and a foolish man. And if you know the story, you know that the wise man built his house on the rock, right? The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And at the end of the parable, I mean, we all know where this is going. The storm comes and the foolish man, his house is washed away and it can't stand up. And so we all get it and it all makes sense to us. But the point that Jesus is making is, Both of them heard the exact same instruction. Both of them knew exactly how they were supposed to build the house. One of them just didn't listen. They both knew it was supposed to be built on the rock. Both heard that. They both knew that if they built it on the sand, it was going to be washed away. And one of them didn't listen. So the difference was not knowledge. The difference was obedience to the knowledge they had. One had wisdom, one didn't. It's action. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing God's word and then having faith to obey it. What is faith? second question I had was, okay, what is faith? Faith is not understanding everything and then acknowledging everything that you understand to be true. That's not faith. This is just knowledge of facts. If we understand something entirely and we see why it's true, and we we recognize all the points that are involved, and then we say, okay, I recognize that to be true. All we've done is recognize a fact to be true. If I said, what is one plus one? What would the answer be? Not three, Steve. Not three. It's two, right? Does it take faith to believe that? No, that's a fact. And sometimes I think we get these things confused. We think that, listen, if you prove everything to me, then I'll have faith. If you show me exactly why what you're saying is right, that all the reasons why God's word is true, then I'll have faith. And that's just, that's not it. We got to get to a point where sometimes we say, you know what, I'm going to trust God because he's smarter than me. And I don't understand every single point. Here's what faith is more like. Can I have one of the kids come up? Um, Lucas, you want to come up? You got this, right? Come on up, Lucas. Okay. If I asked Lucas if one plus one was two, probably know the answer, right? Smart kid. But if I did this, if I took my tie and tied it around Lucas, and then, good, it's on there, good. Can you see anything? Okay. And I took him to here, and then I spun it. Okay, Lucas, you're just gonna spin. Now, Lucas, I want you to remember that there is, um, you're on a stage, pretty high up. You fall down, you'll probably break your neck. Uh, there's also a number of objects that you shouldn't walk into, okay? If I said, now, Lucas, uh, walk straight. Walk straight. 
Why doesn't Lucas want to walk straight? Because he doesn't have faith in me. Because he doesn't see what's going on. He can't trust his next step. And so I might just tell him to walk straight right off a cliff. He doesn't know I'm going to do that, but he doesn't know. Do you see how the difference... If I said, Lucas, while you got your blinders on, what's one plus one? Two, because it's, it's a fact and you see it and it's clear. But faith is stepping out and saying, God, I trust you even though I've got the blindfold on. Okay, thank you, Lucas. You did a great job. I'm kind of hurt that you don't trust me, but... Faith is judging God to be right, to be good, to be true, even when we don't understand. Faith is the belief in the paradox that the Bible, the paradoxes that the Bible put forward for us, even though we don't understand them. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement that when investigated may prove to be true. And the Bible presents for us many paradoxes. And faith is saying, I'm going to trust that even though I don't get it yet. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him or to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So there's two things there that you, that you need to have to have faith. And without faith, you can't please God. To have faith, you must believe that God is, that he exists, that he is there. And you must believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. What does that mean? You believe that he's good. If he is going to be a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, that means that his word is true, that what he says is true. It means that he has the power to do it, that he's sovereign. Like, there's a lot that's wrapped up in that belief. But essentially, it's believing that God is there and that he is good. He is powerful, that he is strong, that he is sovereign. If you believe that, you can have faith. It's judging God to be right, even when we don't understand. And then in this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11... We're given example after example after example of people who had faith. And when we think about the the faith that they had, you have a guy like Noah who is told to build a boat when it's never rained. No sense. It doesn't make any sense. He's blind to the the idea of rain. But he does it because he trusts God. We have Abraham who leaves his family and his wealth, his friends, I mean, everything he's got, he leaves to go out into a desert and God doesn't even tell him where he's going to take him. He just says, go, and I'll tell you where to go when you get there. But Abraham leaves, though he's so blind. Moses gives up the life of the son of a king, of the son of Pharaoh, to be a fugitive, to live as the Israelites who were at the time, they were slaves. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why would anyone do that? The very next verse tells us, because Christ is better than all of Egypt. Because even though he didn't see it right away, he knew that this was right, that trusting God was better than living as a king. And ultimately, we saw that prove to be true. Faith for Peter was walking on water even though you can't walk on water. It was looking to Jesus in the storm to be saved from sinking. Faith is believing that there is strength through weakness. It is believing that it is more blessed to give than to receive. That it is better to go the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, 
or to give away your cloak also, because Jesus simply says it is. Faith is believing that God uses the foolish people in the world to confound the wise. Faith is believing that those who humble themselves will be exalted. That the path to true freedom is found in service to Christ and to others. That if we cling tightly to our lives, we will lose them, but if we willingly give them up to Christ, then we will gain them. To really live, we must die to ourselves. See, all of these statements, they're paradoxes. They don't, they don't make sense on the surface. So what is faith? Faith is saying that that's true, God. I believe it because you said it, even though I might not completely understand it. Here in our context, faith is believing that the trial, the test of difficulty that we face is a cause for joy. And it doesn't make sense. But it is absolutely true because God said it's true. If it did make sense, we would not be talking about faith. We would be be talking about our skills of reason and logic. Oftentimes, oftentimes, all the time, trials and testings don't feel good. They don't. And faith is believing that though this, this current situation, this circumstance that I'm in, it feels painful, it feels harmful, it is difficult. Sometimes more difficult than, than we can imagine. The things that people in our church go through. I get, a, I get a small window into the problems of people. I know, I know pastor gets a larger window, but even then, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the problems that people in our church go through. We know the suffering is great. <laughs> but either the Bible is true, and this verse is true, and there really is a purpose in suffering, or we can throw the whole thing out and quit coming, quit pretending. It's, it's true or it's not, and if it's true, then let's trust it. He's, he's there or he's not. If he's there, then we can trust him. He's good or he's not, and if he's good, then why are we so worried about what we're going through right now, knowing that our Heavenly Father is in control? question is not, do you fully comprehend this trial you're going through? Because the honest and emphatic answer is no. Don't understand it. I hate it. I want it to stop. The right question is, do you judge that God is good? Do you have faith? Is God still trustworthy? Is he still on his throne? Because if you do, you have a cause for joy. He led you here today. He made you exactly the way that you are, the person that you are. He is performing a work in you to make you beautiful. To strengthen you, to mature you, to complete you to make you perfect, lacking nothing. Friend, if we believe this, then we can count our trials as a cause for joy. And when you do, do you know what you have? Wisdom. Wisdom is. So what can we do if we don't have wisdom? What can we do if we're in the middle of this and we're really struggling? Well, he gives us the answer. Ask God in faith. This takes humility. We must recognize that we really don't have all the answers. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, The doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. And we must recognize ourselves to be ignorant. Um, Alistair Begg said the same thing less tastefully. (laughs) He said, People with fat heads will never be wise. 
People with fat heads are stupid. They are not wise. They may be intelligent, and that's why their head is so fat. But they are not wise. Humility is a precursor to wisdom. And so this is where we get our, on our hands, and we say, Lord, I don't know. I need you. I need your help. Believe that God knows the answers to the questions that you don't even know how to ask. Believe that God is, that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and, and believe him with nothing wavering. Don't come to God with a deal, a bargain. Come to God in full faith. Come to, a, come to God as a child comes to their parents, when they don't know that their parents are fallible. My wife, Tara, she believed for a long, long, long time, she might still believe this, <laughs> that when, you, when, when blood is in your veins, it's blue. Anybody, anybody ever heard that before? But why, why do you believe that? Probably because your mom told you. Right? Most of the times, we, we have these things in our lives that we believe just because somebody told us and we trust them. And that's not true. <laughs> Blood's not blue when it's in your veins. It's, it's still red. Here, we're told to come to God as a child who judges that the character of our Heavenly Father is good. And that he really does know all things. That he's not going to lie to us or tell us something just because it makes sense to them. The great news here in this text is that if we lack wisdom and we're humble and we come to God in faith, he will give us wisdom liberally, freely, cheerfully, bountifully. Um, Wisdom is given out of God's generosity, his goodness, and his love. He's waiting to give it. In fact, this this whole text here is an invitation for us to ask him. It says that he abrades not. He's not going to rebuke you for asking. He's not going to criticize you for asking. He's not trying to find fault in you. Even if you've asked the same thing a million times, come back to him again and ask. The promise here is that if we ask in faith, it will be given to us. What an incredible thing. That means that our infinitely wise father wants us to come to him for wisdom. And if we do, he promises to provide it. Why would we not come? I'm going to close with this verse from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That verse doesn't mean you're going to have a Corvette. It doesn't mean you're going to have a big house. It doesn't mean, but it means that the God who loved you so much that he spared not his own son, he delivered him up to be killed in your place. That that God, when we as his children come to him and ask him for something that's good, that's right, wisdom in our lives, how shall he not freely give us all things? He will.